Hello. So, welcome to this. I don't know what I would call this. Um, to, oh my god, your overview? Why did I have such a struggle trying to fucking figure that out? Okay. Oh my god, I have so much to review. No. No. This is so not slay. Okay. So, we have a lot to do. Um, I don't really know where to even start because uh, we didn't even take notes on it. So I think I'm gonna honestly pull up Miss Madalena's um Hello. Why are you going to my coochie? Um Miss Madalena's um What the F is it called? Literally what is it called? What is it called? What is it called? What is it called? Oh my god. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. What the fuck is it called? Wait. Lecture. Her lecture. I'm gonna pull up her lecture and go through it. Um, and basically be like, here you go. And then I think I'm gonna look at her study guide questions and also answer it. Because this is actually gonna be really long. So I don't know if I'm gonna split it up, like do some today, some tomorrow. So, um, chapter 18, it is entitled Alliances War in a Troubled Peace, basically World War One. Um, here are the essential questions. Why did the alliance system fail? How did conflict in the Balkans lead to the outbreak of general war in Europe? What factors made the rise of the Bolsheviks to power in Russia possible? What were the immediate consequences of the end of World War One? And what were the key weaknesses of the Paris Peace Settlement? So, I know how to answer literally all but the first one. I don't know why the alliance system failed, but maybe we can find out soon. Okay, so the main causes of World War I is actually the word main. Militarism for M, alliances for A, imperialism for I, and nationalism for N. So, uh, militarism, basically, um, they... Basically wanted, they had like a more, the Europeans had a more aggressive attitude um, of this policy, which drove them to produce more weaponries, like strong navies and armored vehicles. Um, I think there's more about this on the next slide. Yeah. And so basically like military wise, there was Britain and Germany going, clashing hand, hand in hand, head versus head for um, warship building uh, not warship like um, Jesus, war ships. Anyways, um, and then there was also the unification of Germany, which altered the balance of power in Europe. Um, remember, they went from being like uh, like three hundred autonomous states or independent states to coming together. So like that's kind of like a power balance, um, and more increased like nationalism there that kind of drove militarism. Um, in motivations yeah um then there was also a massive buildup of arms and weapons across europe um yeah and then the a there's also the alliances so basically these were formed to protect against one another um so okay here's somewhat how like the alliances failed because the triple entente and the triple alliance were quickly created and they took very aggressive postures towards one another um and they didn't necessarily fully trust one another either they were kind of formed on like um like 
on defensive terms. Like, I remember, let me see, hold on. Like, um, there are a few in here that I remember. Yeah, so Russia and Britain were on good terms, but they were still wary of one another because of their Mediterranean Sea holdings. And also, they weren't necessarily, like, convinced that, um, they would, like, come to their aid, you know what I mean? We can see this in a few other things, too. Even Great Britain was, um, relatively weary of their relationship with Russia as well, um, because, like, they had, like, clashing desires, and one of them was not gonna get everything they wanted, you know what I mean? Um... So the Triple Entente um, had to um, include France, Russia, and Great Britain, but they were all kind of wary of one another. And I know even with Austria and Hungary, uh, Austria Hungary was part of the Central Powers, like um, Italy and them were friends because they had a common enemy of France, but Italy um, wasn't necessarily like. Um, involved in their defenses like when um like Russia tried to stop Austro-Hungary from annexing two provinces um and like they were kind of left defenseless because Italy stood by and did nothing but Germany openly supported them but Italy didn't really um so that's how like things like, the alliances weren't necessarily that strong, and that's an example of how the alliances weren't strong for, like, um, for the central powers, and then the one between, like, Britain and Germany, how they weren't strong, it was for the alliances, um, yeah. All right, so we also have imperialism, which you should know pretty well by now, like, why this helped influence um, the war efforts, so, um, as you know, the European countries divided up Africa and Asia to strengthen the political and economic power of their mother countries, which resulted in competition among European countries overall, which you should know pretty well. Oh, wait, hold on, I have more things to say about the alliances, I totally, um, forgot. All right, so, this national rivalry rivalry went global because of the imperialism. Um, at the Berlin conferences in 1885, uh, Germany joins in finally for the scramble for Africa. Um, there was also a Moroccan crisis of 1911 where a Moroccan gunboat, oh, what? No, a German gunboat was sent to Morocco to protest French occupation in Morocco. Um, and so since Britain supported France, um, Germany backed down with, yeah. Okay, let me tell you a little bit more about, um, I think I'm going to have to draw out the alliances and, I mean, the central powers and the allies because I literally don't know, like, who the F was friends with who, to be honest. I always get Germany and Russia mixed up. You know this because you're me, but you know. Okay, so the alliances, here's a little bit more. So there was a Bismarckian alliance system, which basically was put in place to preserve peace and the status quo. Um, there was a Three Emperors League, which had Germany, Austro-Hungary, and Russia. Uh, the Congress of Berlin of 1878 basically created peace in the Balkan region after the Balkan War. 
Um, and essentially, Austria-Hungary was set to protect Bosnia and Herzegovina. Herzegovina, sorry. Um, and then there was also a dual alliance um, between Germany and Austria-Hungary, and also the triple alliance between Italy, Austria-Hungary, and Germany. Um, but Italy did actually end up exiting in 1915, um, even though we literally did just talk about how those crises developed um, with Austria-Hungary and rush what hello austria hungary and um italy like we said so like they weren't really that um loyal to their alliance uh, it was more of a defensive alliance um so emperor wilhelm ii dismissed bismarck um and dropped his treaty with russia so russia turned to france for support instead and then we also of course had the triple entente which was russia france and britain um yeah so the central powers i'll just say this really fast central powers included germany austria hungary the ottoman empire and bulgaria so that kind of has a triple alliance within it which had italy austria hungary and germany and then the allies were russia france serbia great britain the united states italy and romania um, so we can see the Triple Entente with Russia, France, and Britain. Okay. Now, we talked about imperialism. Now we can talk about nationalism. So nationalism was both a uniting force and a divisive one. It resulted in Germany and Italy uniting into a strong nation, respectively, um, and caused the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire and Austria-Hungary. So... Nationally, um, with the end of the Franco-Prussian War, um, Germany obtained Alsace and Lorraine from France. And France was like, nah, girl, I want those lands back to be fully autonomous in my nation. And Germany was like, we're going to keep those, we're going to keep those. Um, and also, nationalism was still tearing apart Austro-Hungary. Remember, they kind of wanted to come together into three to be the Austro-Hungarian-Czechoslovakian thing. But instead, there was a dual monarchy instead of a, a triple monarchy. Um, so there was also a mix of nationalities in the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, there was Yugoslavian people, Romanian people, Greek people, etc., and also, there was a hotbed of pan-Slavism in Serbia, and the Black Hands, aka a Serbian nationalist group, wanted to liberate the Slavs in Austro-Hungary, and this actually led to one of the events that led us uh, ultimately to the beginning of World War One. All right, now that we have covered the main parts of what led up to World War One, aka militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. Now we can move on to what happened in the Balkans. All right, so this happened between 1908 and 1913. Basically, um, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Govina, um, which were predominantly Slavic areas, um, served as the protectorates of Austria-Hungary. Um, for in 1908, finally, Austria tried to annex them, which essentially ignited the feelings of pan-Slavism in Serbia. And Serbians began to protest against the Austro-Hungarians. Hungarians. Um, and they called over Russia for aid because Russia was like um, a brother to them, I believe. Um, 
Yeah, and they also supported Slavic unity. Um, then the Balkan Wars occurred. So, um, basically, the countries disagreed on how to divide up the new land, which then led to the Second Balkan War. And the countries involved in the First Balkan War was like Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, and Montenegro, uh, who warred with the Ottomans over the Balkan territories. So then come the Second Balkan War um, in 1913, there's more issues still um, because they don't know how to divide the land. Um, So Serbia actually had had a goal of land in Albania to gain access to the Adriatic Sea, but this was blocked by the creation of an independent Albania at the London Conference, and it was supported by Austria, Hungary, and Germany. So at the end, Austria, Hungary, and Serbia distrusted each other immensely. Now, here are um, important events that led up to World War I. They all occurred in 1914, so war was declared in 1914 as well. So here's what I mentioned with, like, the Serbian, like, wanting pan-Slavism, like, nationality stuff. Um, so the Archduke Francis Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, Govina. Um, so... That was the, what's his name? Not the Serbian guy. Um, but this did happen in Serbia. But I think he himself was Austro-Hungarian. I don't know. We'll check later. Um, so Serbia then turned to the Slavic big brother, Russia, like we mentioned, for support. And Russia was like, yes, we will help you, little brother. And then France came along too because they're trotting along, you know. Um... Then, a month later, Austria presented an ultimatum to Serbia, which basically was like, uh, we're going to make a you a protectorate or or else we're going to hurt you. Uh, and then um, a few days later, five days later, Austria declares war on Serbia and Russians mobilize thereafter. So basically, um, like Austrian um, military personnel were instructed or government people actually were instructed like even if the dictator like wait what what am i saying even if serbia had accepted their um ultimatum which they actually did um then they would still wage war with them because i don't know why because they said that was the best idea anyways so then um a few days later germany declares war on russia because they're like hey 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 we protect Austria-Hungary. Get out of there. Um, and then France declares war on Germany because they're like, ah, 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 we support Russia. And then Britain declares war on Germany after Belgium was invaded. And Britain's like, ah, 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 we do will defeat you again. Mind you, Britain is like the major superpower here. All right. Um, yeah, so there's just the central powers again. All right. So, the catalysts of World War I, basically the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and um, the Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip, who killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Um, causes, we already know this. Um, this we also know as well. Alright, now let's talk about the weaponry used in um, World War I. So... There were rifles, there were bayonets for close combat, there were machine guns, which was modeled on Hiram Maxim's design. Um, There were flamethrowers, which were first used by the Germans. Um, There were grenades, which cleared out the trenches. There were pistols. 
Um, there were submarines, like German U-boats especially. They could fire torpedoes against ships. Um, poison gas, like chlorine gas uh, and mustard gas. Um, then there was airplanes that were fitted with machine guns and bombs. And then mortars, which were short, stumpy tube designs um, to fire a projectile at a steep angle. And they were fired from trenches, uh, like, and they were like a more smaller piece of artillery. And then there were also war tanks, which were created in response to the stalemate, for whatever that means. All right, so World War One, who is to blame specifically? So we got Britain, we got Austria-Hungary, we got Germany, we got Russia, and we have France. So Britain, this has a lot to do with Belgium. So they felt a duty to protect Belgium, um, essentially because they were like the neutral barrier for them, and it prevented other nations from like infiltrating Britain. Um, and they also um, feared Germany, like being just across the English Channel, if like they were to be invaded, you know, because then they would never have, they wouldn't have that neutral barrier between them and other nations. Um, and then we have Austria-Hungary, which. They blamed Serbia for terrorism and wanted to crush the Serbian nationalism. So in doing so, they went to attack Serbia. And that's like kind of the reason why like the ultimatum, like even if they agreed with it, they were still going to wage war with them. And so, of course, Serbia had the support of um, Russia. And then that became like that made Serbia seem like a more intense power and thus other larger powers were getting weary of Serbia and its power so then other powers like Germany and France decided it was a be a good idea to fight with them all right Germany they are to blame because they felt that they must stand behind Austro-Hungary who was being attacked currently by Russia and Serbia now, Russia supported the Slavic people, as we've stated, and feared that Austro-Hungary wanted to rule the Slavic people, and they didn't want to see that happen. Also, they just unified themselves. They didn't want to see one of their, like, um, friendly relation nations be um, succumb to um, anything but nationalism. You know what I mean? And then we have France, who backed Russia and felt it might someday need Russian support against Germany. Oh, did I read that wrong about Russia declaring? No, I didn't. Yeah. Okay. So there's that. Um, so now let's talk about the Germany Schleifen Plan, which is spelled S-C-H-L-I-E-F-F. And basically, they planned to defeat France in six weeks. Um, they wanted to hold off their attacks on Russia. Um, and they felt that they could invade France through Belgium um, and seize Paris thereafter. Um, but here is why it failed. The Belgians, they're still people. So they protested immensely. And um, Russia was actually able to mobilize with great speed against Germany, so they couldn't just, like, hold... So Germany couldn't just hold off on Russia. Like, Russia was coming for them. Um, from the Eastern Front, Russia was coming for them. Um, and then also, the French counteracted heroically at the Battle of the Marne River in September of 1914 to stop 
ger- the German drive to Paris. So they, Germany was like, oh, ho, ho, we are so powerful. We just united ourselves. It's going to be so great. We have like this intense feeling of nationalism and we can take down these people. No, you can't because the Russians are going to come in and then the French are going to come in to back the Russians because they're also quite powerful. All right. So now we're going to talk about the Western Front. Um, which has more to do with, I don't even know. So basically this is the trench warfare here. So essentially this was really bloody and costly fighting. Um, and there were no breakthroughs here or any advantages on the Western front. Um, technologically there were many advancements, uh, like in weaponry um and as a result there was a there the slaughter of a generation of young men in trenches came forth there was uh especially the battle of somme which was from july to november of 1916 where 1.2 million soldiers were either killed or wounded then we have the eastern front which is a little bit more um eventful so in 1914 german victories under Hindenburg and Lundendorf were achieved against Russia uh, in 1915. Um, it was essentially a year of success for the Central Powers, and Russia was actually pushed out of Poland. Um, the British Gallipoli campaign um, to knock out the Ottomans failed, which is unfortunate. So there's another reason why the Central Powers were kind of dominating, because the British were not succeeding. Uh, in 1916, the Germans pushed deep into Russia. Um, so Russians actually used a single shot rifles, while Germans used machine guns. So that's why they were able to be successful. Um, Russians retreated in 1917. Um, Tsar Nicholas II was abdicated, and Alexander Kerensky um, led the provisional government, and the Bolsheviks were able to seize power in November and pulled out of the war. Now, on the Eastern Front again, um, here is how the rise of the Bolsheviks like made was made possible. The abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, the provisional government, and the November Revolution. So the, uh, the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II made the Bolsheviks' rise to power in Russia possible because um, there were so many war casualties, he felt he needed to leave. Um, there were extreme economic and social problems that led to strikes and demonstrations. And he also had a weak rule and like control over his troops were like really bad. He was not successful in leading them at all. Um, the provisional government um, was weak as well. Um, so they actually, the Bolsheviks worked against this government um, and they wanted all power in the Soviets. And this is actually when the Soviets like formed. Um, and this is when Germany sends Lenin into Russia as well. And, Lush, and Lenin gains power in Russia because he's like kind of like amping up these Bolsheviks. Then the November Revolution occurs, and the Bolsheviks seize power. Um, essentially, factory workers, like as a result, factory workers were in charge of the plants, the church and property, church property and banks were taken by the state. There are various other reforms as well. Um, the Treaty of Blessed Litovsk, Litovsk, um, resulted in Russia signing an armistice with Germany and exited World War One. 
Um, but then war does not end. War does not end with Russia here. There's actually a civil war versus the Reds versus the Whites. The Reds are the Bolsheviks and the Whites are the non-Bolsheviks. Um, and by 1920, despite the war efforts in the Civil War, Lenin has firm control. I mean, by 1921, Lenin has firm control over everything. All right. Now, here are the, um, the characteristics of waging war for World War I. Um, it was the first total war where the entire civilian populations were actually mobilized for winning the war. Like, they were actually very invested in um, what they were fighting for. Um, because at, like, it finally turned into, like, not just, like, war that you, like, it, it was affecting everyone. It's not just, like, war you hear about and you can go on about it your life. Like, y- your life's, like, lives, like, you can just, you knew. Um, also propaganda was used, like, immensely, um, to dehumanize the enemies. Um, news was censored as well. Um, and all economic production was actually focused on war. So women were working more. There was more rationing, which is also more ways that this affected um, society that you couldn't like ignore that war was going on. Uh, bonds were bought and they actually aimed to starve out their enemy. Um, it also spread to global theaters um, and expanded into China. That too. Um, okay. There are some naval blockades and um, diplomacy factors. So uh, as for naval blockades, um, the British Navy cut off German overseas trade, but then the German U-boats prevented Britain from getting vital supplies from colonies in the U.S. And then come 1915, Germany sunk the Lusitania and turned... Sorry, I did a discussion on this. I did not realize that. Um, okay, I fucked up. It's okay. Now I understand why I got a 94 on this. Whatever. Wrong information. It's okay. Eventually, essentially, the Lusitania turned the United States' opinion against Germany. The singing of the Lusitania. Anyways, in 1915, we're going to talk about some more diplomacy. So in Italy, the Italy entered the war against the former allies. Against their former allies, the Central Powers, um, because they were promised um, the Italia Redenta, or aka the Unredeemed Italy, and some German colonies and the Ottoman territory was promised to them as well. Um, in 1917, the Zimmerman Note was published and promised Mexico some of its former American holdings if it entered war with Germany. Arabs and Jews were promised autonomy if they joined the Allies, and Eastern Europeans promised were promised ethnic control if they supported the Allies. Now comes the end of World War One and the immediate consequences of the end of World War One. So, in fall of nineteen eighteen, Bulgaria and Turkey sued for peace. The Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, and Germany was in a revolution, and Kaiser William II fled. Because that was what led to the German Revolution. And on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, an armistice was signed, ending World War I. There are various peace settlements that resulted from it, but there was not much success to them. Uh, there was Wilson's, Woodrow Wilson's peace plan, a.k.a. the 14 points. Um, he claimed most 
lead to end secret treaties, free the seas, free trade, reduce arms, um, find just settlements of colonial claims, evacuate occupied territories, and uh, have them receive national self-determination. And they also proposed the League of Nations, which was an international political organization to settle foreign disputes. Now, here are some key weaknesses where you can see in the Paris Peace Conference. So let me tell you what um, first happened in the Paris Peace Conference. So the big three people that participated in the conference was Woodrow Wilson of the United States, David Lloyd George of Britain, and Georges Clemenceau of France. And this actually uh, excluded the Central Powers, which is not good in the long run. And nationality lines in Central and Eastern Europe were blurred. Here are the obstacles of the Paris Peace Conference. Britain and France wanted Germany to pay for war. They wanted reparations and not peace. France wanted Alsace and Lorraine back, even though Germany had won it with the Franco-Prussian War, and Germany did not want to give it up. Uh, Britons had also promised Arabs an independent state carved out of the Ottoman Empire. And Balfour, the Balfour Declaration was where British promised Jews a national homeland in Palestine. So they're giving all of these people, they want to give all these people lands because they helped them in the war effort, but can they do that? The answer is no. So here comes the Versailles Treaty, where essentially Germany is paying for a lot of it, whether that be uh, socially, economically, uh, or politically, or territorially. So German territories were ceded to the Allies. Uh, France gets Alsace and Lorraine back. Um, Schleswig was gone to Denmark. Western Prussia went to Poland. And um, the French actually took control of the Saar region. They also lost their overseas colonies. The War and Guilt Clause also emerged. Uh, the German army and navy was cut back to... 100,000 servicemen. Basically, all I need to know is that it was cut down. Rhineland was to be demilitarized and occupied by the Allies. So now Germany, although it just was just unified, like, it's now it's losing some of its, like, independence over itself, like, and is being occupied by other nations. Um, yeah. Anyways. Um, the League of Nations was created, but it was weak, and the United States never joined, and Germany and Russia were actually excluded. Um, and also, Germany had to pay actual like monetary reparations, like $33 billion in reparations. Alright, so, here are the winners and the losers of World War One. The winners were the Allies, and the losers were the Central Powers. So the winners were Britain, France, the U.S., Italy, Romania, and that's it. And the losers were Germany, Austro-Hungary, Russia, the Ottomans, and Bulgaria. So um, both Britain and France... Um, both Brit- oh, Wait, sorry. All three, Britain, France, and the U.S. got mandates in... M-E? I don't really know what that means, but I will look it up later and then I'll remember it when you say M-E. Um, and that's all that Britain got. And then France got the demilitarization of Rhineland, so they occupied that territory. And they also had the mandate over the Saar in Germany. 
Um, and then the United States established a League of Nations, although they did not join it. Um, and they also had mandates not only in ME, but also Africa and Asia. Um, in Italy, they got control over the port of Trieste and Trentino. In Transylvania, Transylvania was given to Romania from Hungary. And they were also given Bessarabia from Russia. Um, now, Germany was the biggest loser of World War One, So they actually got the full blame of the emergence of the war. And um, they actually had to pay the most reparations. They lost Alsace and Lorraine. And France occupied the Tsar for 15 years. And they had their military limited. And they also couldn't have no tanks or submarines. Um... Austria-Hungary, I don't know what any of this means, so I need to have you, like, listen to Miss Madalena's, like, actual words to figure out what they won, because I have no idea what the fuck that means. Um, yeah. And then Russia, um, like, most of Poland was carved out of Russian land, so they were being, like, some of their territories being taken from them. And then also, like, Finland and Lithuania and par- property of that sort became independent states, states. And then the Ottoman um, was shrunk severely. Um, the, shore, the shores of Dardanelles um, were internationalized and open to all powers. And West Anatolia was given to Greece and East Anatolia was given to Armenia. Um, and also Bulgaria lost territory to Greece and Yugoslavia. The results of World War I. The war cost was $300 billion dollars. The Russian, German, Austria, Austrian, and Ottoman empires ended. The resources were strained. There was an increased involvement of government and society with the propaganda. Women's suffrage was helped, though. There was rapid development of new technology, which was good, too. The economy transitioned back from wartime to world trade. Um, the Russian Revolution led to the first communist country. Um, on the map, like, officially. Patchwork of weak and ethnically mixed states in Central and Eastern Europe was mm, accomplished. Uh, and France and Britain acquired colonial possessions, like in Germany and in the Ottomans. Turkey was modernized, and over 25 million people died, while 21 million were wounded. Alright, I'm gonna download this mix and see what Miss Madalena has to say about, um... What is it called? About uh, what Austria and Hungary lost from the war because I genuinely don't know. Okay, now I'm going to go over my assignments. And yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh... All right, the shadows lengthen and the July crisis. Here we go. I'm just going to read these things. Briefly identify two main causes of World War I. Two main causes of World War I include issues with rival nationalism as well as conflicts within the Balkans. Essentially, Austro-Hungary attempted to annex areas of Serbia to its own nation and in turn threatened the holdings of the Baltics. The 
Baltic, the Balkans, hello, sorry, I don't know why I said Baltics, the Balkans, thus piquing the interest of other nations that wanted the Balkans for their own national interests. As for rival nationalism, the Slavs that were fighting for unifying the Slavic state assassinated the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. That is Franz Ferdinand, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, he is Austro-Hungarian, which almost beckoned intervention from other nations that would cause for war. Briefly explained, one reason why Austria should be blamed for World War I. Austria should be blamed for World War I because of their ultimatum that they presented to Serbia. Since they did this, and although Serbia accepted it, Austria-Hungary broke off their diplomatic relations from Serbia and thus threatened war in the Balkans that had large potential to spread. Briefly explain one reason why Russia should be blamed for World War I. Russia should be blamed for World War I because they declared official support for Serbia. In supporting Serbia and their endeavors, they posed a greater threat to other European powers and enhanced the Serbian force. Briefly explain one reason why British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey could have prevented World War I. Sir Edward Grey could have prevented World War I if the Conference of Ambassadors was revived and his proposals were accepted, to which he would have followed the same conciliatory policy that he had when dissolving the First Balkan War. Doing so would have relieved international tensions. Briefly explain one reason why Britain joined World War I. Britain joined World War I because Belgium was invaded. As a result, the liberal British supported mobilization of war here because Belgium was like their neutral barrier between other countries and since Germany had promised to respect that neutrality but violated such, they proved to be a true enemy in need of discipline. Briefly identify connections between nationalism in Bosnia and Italy. Nationalism in Bosnia and Italy is similar to, in the sense that they, had both, they both had radical nationalist groups that took harsh political and social actions to obtain their means. Bosnia was the Bo- Bosnia with the Bosnian nationalists that assassinated Franz Ferdinand, and Italy with the Carbonaries that worked to secretly revolutionize the government for unification. What was ironic about targeting Franz Ferdinand for assassination? Targeting Franz Ferdinand for assassination was ironic because while him and his wife had been greeted kindly by Serbians the day before their assassination, Bosnian nationalists were the ones to kill him. This is ironic because not many had suspected a thing about this occurring, and even the threats made against him went ignored despite his high status. According to the reading, why should Austria and Hungary be blamed for World War I? According to the reading, Austria and Hungary should be blamed for World War I because no matter how the Serbs reacted to their ultimatum, they were instructed to wage war with them anyway. Should Serbia accept any blame for World War I? Why or why not? Serbia should take partial blame for World War I because in their attempt to obtain Serbian nationalism, they assassinated the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, thus igniting tensions between Austria-Hungary and its allies. Although they accepted the Austrians' ultimatum, Austrian ministers like Vladimir Giselle was instructed to break off relations with the territory regardless of their answer and war with them because of the Serbs' harsh actions. Okay. Um, now we have, we have a few more SAQs actually, cause she wasn't here a lot of this week. So we did a lot. Um, okay. We have two more. Okay. Briefly identify one reason why war was acceptable to Germans. One reason why wars was acceptable to Germans was because one reason why war was acceptable to Germans was because of the support for expanding upon military victories. Here's the militarism again. Uh, waging war was accept- acceptable to them because they felt that they were militarily superior and could advance their mother country further by spreading their virtues and conquering markets elsewhere. Briefly explain one reason why Europeans were enthusiastic about war. 
Europeans were enthusiastic about war because of the way in which modern war was portrayed to be, quote-unquote, a matter of individual courage and resource. This form of inherent optimism led Europeans to believe that nothing but good would result from the war for them. Briefly explain one reason why World War I did not drastically change women's lives. World War I did not drastically change women's lives because once the men returned from war, women had to go back to the way their lives were prior to the war. Protective labor legislation was stripped from women as soon as war broke out, allowing them to work longer and enter more fields in place of man. But upon the, women's, the, upon the men's return, the women were forced to leave these professions and go back to employment life prior to war. Okay, now we have one more SAQ, and then we'll get into some of these um, mini readings that I had that I want to just review um, with you. All right. Final one. Briefly explain two causes of World War I. Two causes of World War I include the drive for nationalism and imperialism motives. First, France wanted Alsace and Lorraine back from Germany, which they lost in the treaty that resulted from the Franco-Prussian War. Secondly, nations involved in the Berlin Conference were struggling for African colonies to imperialize, and other actions had been taken in other areas, like Morocco, but were met with other European nations' resistance, which we might mention, like the Moroccan crisis um, and the uh, Berlin Conference. Briefly explain two differences between weaponry in the Civil War and the World War I. Two differences between weaponry in the Civil War and World War I include the full automation of guns as well as the development of warships. The Civil War had the Spencer rifle that was semi-automatic, but the First World War had full machine guns like the one modeled after Hiram Maxim's development. Uh, furthermore, the Civil War had ironclads that were coated in metal for defensive purposes, but World War I had the dreadnought battleship that has fully automated artillery technology installed within it. Briefly explain two provisions of the Versailles Treaty. Two provisions of the Versailles Treaty include various dues to Ger dues Germany owes to France. To start, Germany is expected to pay reparations to France for the destruction they caused to France's coal mines, as well as other war destruction. Additionally, Germany is told to return the territories of Alsace and Lorraine to French possession, as such a provision in the Treaty of Frankfurt was redacted. Okay, now we're going to open up, actually, I did lie, we're going to open up the PowerPoint um, lecture and see what Miss Madalena has to say about what the Austro-Hungarian people had lost, because I seriously don't know. Here, I'm just going to play it and let you listen to it. So she's going to go over the winners and the losers of World War One. So I thought it might be helpful to look at the end of World War One and to look at, uh, you know, a chat of like, you know, the winners and the losers. Usually when you talk about war, you do talk about, you know, the winners and the losers. So for the on the left hand side with the winners, uh, Britain received mandates in the Middle East. France received mandates in the Middle East, a demilitarization of the Rhineland and a mandate over the Sahara for 15 years. The United States um, contributed with the League of Nations, although it didn't end up joining. But um, the United States had mandates in the Middle East, Africa and Asia. Uh, Italy, uh, Trentino uh, was received in the port of Trieste, and for Romania, Romania took Transylvania from Hungary and Bessarabia from Russia. Now, the losers of the war, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Russia, Ottoman, and Bulgaria. So let's talk about what they lost. So Germany obviously slept with that Versailles Treaty, um, reparations, full blame, the loss of Alsace and Lorraine to France, the occupation of the Saar Valley by France for 15 years, 
and severely limited military to 100,000, and no tanks and submarines were allowed. For Austria-Hungary, um, this dual empire um, was split up. So uh, the Kingdom of Hungary was created, Czechoslovakia was created, and Yugoslavia was created. So the Austro-Hungarian Empire was now divided up based on nationality, and independent countries were the result. Russia, well, most of Poland was carved out, carved out of Russian land, and Finland, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia became independent states. So Russia also lost a lot of land. For the Ottoman Empire, it left a small area in central and northern Anatolia. The shores of the Dardanelles were internationalized and open to all powers, and West Anatolia went to Greece, and East Anatolia went to Armenia. And lastly, Bulgaria lost territory to Greece and Yugoslavia. All right, well, that's what Miss Manalena had to say about um, the conditions. And so I guess ME stands for the Middle East. Now we know. Okay. Now we need to talk about the Russian Revolution because I guarantee you she's going to give you a short answer question about this. So the Russian Revolution took place in 1917, um, and it was the war and the regime's failure to deal with the crisis that provoked that precipitated the revolution. So here's the background. By mid-1915, the center and left groups in Russia were urging moderate reforms. Um, as a result, confusion, strikes, and defeatism mounted at home during 1916, while the armies at the front, which lacked transport equipment, supplies, and medical care, slowly bled to death. So they're not pleasing the armies nor the people. Um, the March Revolution... Um, was a product of despair and high emotion, which remained virtually leaderless and without a program. So basically, like, people were left with little food as well, and they wanted to revolt. Um, and they also were able to overthrow the Tsar because um, loyalty of the garrison of Petrograd, so, like, all the military people, was disintegrating. Um, and the Soviet knew that the great mass of Russian people did not care about Constantinople and wanted immediate peace as well as land and food. Um, Marxists believed the there was a necessity of a preliminary bourgeoisie revolution, and although they would not participate in the provisional government, they offered it their limited support. Um, the Duma and the Soviet agreed to grant political liberties immediately and to summon an assembly to establish a future form of government and give Russia a constitution. So you may be wondering, how can the Bolsheviks, how were the Bolsheviks able to rise to power, which we kind of mentioned um, earlier? Um, so the Bolsheviks could rise to power because the people were unhappy with how the government was running. Um, they were struggling financially and the defense was weak, as we mentioned with the, um, the soldiers. And they also lacked like supplies and they couldn't get supplies um, because there was like a lack of ally paths. So, the provisional government was a total failure. Um, Russian moderates had no experience in authority, and they were trying to run a nation, and it was not working. Um, the two greatest issues facing the provisional government were agrarian discontent and the continuation of the war. So, peasants wanted land, and they wanted it fast, but the provisional government believed in acting with deliberation according to the law. Um, and they also, the provisional government also unrealistically hoped that Russia would win the war. Um, yeah. And that was not true. Um, and then they talk about Lenin here, which I don't really understand. Yeah. Then the November Revolution occurred. Yeah. 
And... Then London became in power eventually, and there was like Reds v. Whites. Um, in Moscow in 1913, there was a week of street fight, a street fighting between the Bolshevik Reds and the anti-Bolshevik Whites, um, because yeah, and anti-Bolsheviks were like opposed the revolution, um, and the Bolsheviks were able to have so much success because um, the provincial garrisons, aka the military people, opposed the war and willingly allied themselves with the workers. Then there was um, a lot of war communism, which was the first period of Soviet history, which mainly featured um, military events like the Civil War and foreign powers intervening on Russian soil. Um, Yeah, so basically labor was compulsory, strikes were outlaws, internal trade was illegal, church and state were separated by decree, um, and yeah. And essentially... They called for a union of the hungry against the better fed in the regime to deliberately south class hatred in the villages and simulated civil war in the countryside. Hold on. I have to answer my father. As I was saying, I had to do this stuff um, with my dad. So by calling for a union of the hungry against the better fed, the regime deliberately south class hatred in the villages and stimulated civil war in the countryside, essentially. Um... In 1918, the Peace of Brest-Litovsk was signed, which um, got like them out of the war, but it also signed away Ukraine, Baltic provinces, Finland, and such that like really undid three centuries of Russian territorial expansion, which was unfortunate for them. Then the real civil war came in 1918 to 1921. Um, basically, Russia withdrew from the war. The Czech nationalist leader, Thomas G. Masaryk, wanted to have the Czech Corps sent to the French front. And as the Czechs gathered, the communists became suspicious of their intentions and ordered them to disarm. Um, and then the Czechs were like, no, and they took control of the Siberian Railroad. Um, then the Czechs just kept revolting. So the local Soviets were actually unprepared. Um, yeah. And local anti-Bolshevik armies quickly came into being. In July, in fear that the whites would rescue the former Tsar and his family, um, aka the um, anti-Bolsheviks, in exile in Ekaterinburg in the Ural Mountains, the leader of the local Soviet, encouraged by Lenin, executed Nicholas II, his wife, his son, his four daughters, his doctor, his servants, and his dog. Um, and then the Czechs were like, what the F? So then the Bolshevik leadership feared a general counter-revolution in which any person might be involved. Um, then the whites were defeated and the reds had to face a new war with the Poles. Um, and then the effect on Soviet power and the loss of mineral resources and the coastlines would have been substantial, which is why the Western powers now swung around in support of, um, the whites. Then the Reds concluded peace in October of 1920 and the Poles obtained much of white Russia and the Western Ukraine. Um, yeah. The final line... I don't even know what this means. 
Now, the Reds turned on to Baron Wrangell, who had marched northward from Crimea and had established a moderate regime in the territory he occupied. Um, essentially, they disagreed so violently in the proper course for Russia to follow that they could agree only to postpone discussions of these critical problems. Uh, the whites never reached an understanding with the non-Russian minorities who lived in these regions. Most important, the whites could not command the support of the peasantry. Um, that's why that they couldn't like have a lot of power in comparison to the Reds. Uh, the peasantry grew sick of both sides, though. Uh, but moreover, the whites simply did not command as much military strength as did the Reds. Also, key note about Lenin, he was trying to wage war between the wealthy and regular peasants. So that's kind of where it got a little iffy with him. Um, yeah. In the end, famine was still raging and class hatreds were exploited on an unparalleled scale. So you're still a little confused about that, clearly, because what the F did you literally even just say? Um, yeah, but whatever, it's okay. You may have to reread her tomorrow. That's fine. But yeah. So let me tell you about these people to just clarify like their positions on the matter um so for austria hungary germany and them are friends and their common enemy was russia and france uh italy and them were also friends because their common enemy was france their greatest interests were to protect their territory and control the balkan peninsula and keep peace and spread goodwill as for Russia, their allies were uh, Serbia and Britain, although Britain and them were just on good terms, but they were still weary of them because of their Mediterranean sea holdings, and they grew a defensive alliance with France, um, and yeah. So their interests included protecting Serbia, um, and to consider Germany a threat because Austria-Hungary considered them a close friend. Um, and they also wanted to have passage through the Black Sea Straits and gain access to the Mediterranean Sea. The British had an improved relationship with France because they had common fears and goals. And their Russian relationship improved as well, but they were still weary of it because they had the desire for Black Sea control. But wanted the alliance because of the, their position um, in the east or east of Germany. Um, they felt that they needed to protect the neutrality of Belgium. Um, they felt that Germany worried them, and um, they just didn't want that their strategic control over the Suez Canal to be interfered with. Um, yeah. They didn't want any naval superiority to challenge theirs. Um, yeah. They felt as though Germany was their greatest threat as well. Now, Germany felt as though France was their greatest enemy and Austria-Hungary was their closest friend. So, Germany wanted to expand their influences around the world and acquire overseas colonies, especially in Africa and Asia. Um, they wanted to build a navy that would rival Britain and they were interested in keeping Austria-Hungary to control the Balkan area. Uh. Next, France felt that Germany was their enemy and Russia was uh, their defensive ally. Um, yeah. So, as a nation, they were determined to win back their Alsace and Lorraine and protect their overseas possessions. Now, Serbia... 
Um, Austria-Hungary was their biggest obstacle, and they felt Russia was a good friend. They supported Slavic unity. Their biggest interests were surviving against the Austro-Hungarian menace, and they wanted all Slavs to unite and establish their own nation, and they also wanted to fight against Austro-Hungarian control of the Balkan Peninsula. Yay! Alright, almost done. So, let me tell you about, um, William Pfaff's, um, how he describes World War One's greatest lessons to be. He said that it was a world war because its consequences destroyed the prevailing order in Asia, just as in Europe. It broke the spell of colonialism. The Europeans ruled because of their superior organizational and administrative capacities and their confidence in themselves, and also because of the morale critique they made of Asia's societies. The First World War broke out, broke that moral spell by demonstrating that Europe could mobilize mass. Um, the war also involved, invented totalitarianism. It was the most important, pack, important fact about the First World War is that it was unexpected, unpredicted, and one can even say uncaused. Here's more about the Austrio, Austro-Hungarian ultimatum that they gave to Serbia. So they... One, they wish to suppress every publication which shall incite hatred and contempt of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. Two, they wanted to confiscate all of its means of propaganda against them. Uh, Number four, they wanted to remove from the military and administrative service in general all officers and officials who have been guilty of carrying on the propaganda against Austro-Hungary. Six, they wanted to institute a judicial inquiry against every participant in the conspiracy of the 28th of June who who may be found of Serbian territory, and eight, by efficient measures to prevent the participation of Serbian authorities in smuggling of weapons and explosives across the frontier. Now we have this beautiful chart. So, France. Here are the France. They had the intense cordial between Britain and them, and the triple entente between Britain, them, and Russia. They did not like Germany because the Franco-Prussian War. And they owed Germany war reparations and lost France provinces. Oh, wait. You know why. That's why. They were interested in getting revenge on Germany and getting German troops out of France and protecting overseas interests to help Britain. And now, here's their motto. Germans are the menaces. Our overseas protections can't be left defenseless. Great Britain also had the Entente Cordial between France and them. Then the Triple Entente between France and them and Russia. Now, they feared Germany as France wanted revenge on them because of the naval rivalry for Britain. Um, They also feared Russian control of the Black Sea Straits. Uh, so they wanted to ally with them rather than go against them. So they wanted to, here were their interests, they wanted to protect Belgium neutrality um, and the Suez Canal. And they wanted to keep their naval supremacy and prevent the Black Sea Straits from getting into Russian control. So Britain says we will protect our neighbors to save our own security, both on land and on sea. Now Russia... They had the alliance with Serbia, aka for the Slavic heritage, because of their Slavic heritage. And they also had the Triple Entente between Britain, France, and themselves. Now, here are their enemies. Their alliance with 
France against Germany meant that they did not like Germany. And they were, yeah. Um, sometimes Britain was a threat to them over the Navy control the Medi- over the Mediterranean as well. But they were somewhat civil with them. They were interested in keeping their Black Sea Straits and protecting Serbia against Austro-Hungary. Hungary, sorry, not Hungary, weird. Here's their motto. To the French, we will prove loyal so long as they protect us in return. Our efforts to secure the Serbs and Black Sea access. Now we have Serbia. Um, their friends were Russia. That's about it. Um, and then with Russia came Britain and France as well. Their enemies, Austria-Hungary, because they annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina um, with the help of Germany. So, enemies, Austria-Hungary and Germany. They were interested in Pan-Slavism and to fight for control of the Balkans. Their motto is that Russians are my homies that will help us create our own home. Yeah. Uh, Germany, they're friends with Austro-Hungary in the dual alliance. And then the triple alliance resulted with Austro-Hungary themselves and Italy. Then their enemies include France because of the Franco-Prussian War because they France still wanted revenge against them. Um, and then they also had deteriorating relations with Russia because um, they supported Austro-Hungary in the Balkans. Or Germany supported Austro-Hungary. And they also feared France, France and Russia being together. Their interests were to expand their influences in African and Asian colonies. They wanted naval supremacy and they also um, wanted great relations with Austro-Hungary to keep Balkans under control. Here's their motto. The French are still so butthurt about them losing in 71 that they want to keep taking hits on us that make us think we've already won. Alright. Austria-Hungary. They're friends with Germany because they have a common language, culture, and heritage. Of course, there's a dual alliance between them and Germany, and then also the triple alliance between them, Germany, and Italy. Their enemies include Russia and Serbia because Russia supported Slavs gaining independence in the Balkans, and Serbia were the Slavs. Um, they also feared French and Russian alliance because of the power that would result from it, much like Germany, how they feared that too. Their interests, they did not want to lose territory in Europe, like Bosnia and Herzegovina. And, yeah, they also wanted control of the Balkans. And their motto was, I am hungry for the Baltics. That is basically all you need to know. I don't really have anything else for you, um, aside from, like, learning more about the Russian Revolution. But that you're probably going to have to do on your own time, because I don't know how to explain that right now. But basically, remember, ME stands for the Middle East. And yeah, enjoy.